Annie Leonard, and I'm the founder of the Story of Stuff Project. And what I do is I work to change the way that we make and use and throw away stuff. Or in fancy lingo, I say I'm transforming systems of production and consumption. But making, using, and throwing away stuff is a lot more accessible. Um, Before the story of stuff, I really did spend about 20 years traveling around the world. Um, I worked for a bunch of different environmental groups, and I was investigating the factories where our stuff is made and the dumps where our stuff is dumped. So I got to see firsthand the often hidden environmental, social, health, emotional, spiritual, economic, all the problems of the way that we use stuff, make and use stuff. And so when I came back from all those travels, I was I'm frustrated at how little people were talking about these issues. You know, if if you go through your day-to-day life, the only relationship we have with stuff is the advertisements and the buying it and then maybe throwing it out, um, often 10 minutes later. (laughs) So I was experimenting with different ways to talk about the underside of our consumption patterns without being a drag. You know, so many environmentalists are so whiny and wonky and and so much of the discussion about stuff is either super technical and data heavy or really about guilt and fear. You know, shame on you for having a cell phone. And I just thought there must be a better way to talk about this stuff. So I experimented and came up with this film, The Story of Stuff, which is a 20 minute fast, really fast, a short 20 minutes, a 20 minute fast paced, fact filled even funny look at systems of production and consumption. I put it online in December 2007, thinking that hardly anyone would watch it. I thought the main avenue of distribution would be mailing DVDs to people who wanted me to come give this talk live, and I didn't want to fly there. And to my amazement, um, we got 50,000 views in one day. We're now at over 30 million views. And uh, from every country in the world, I can actually go online and see a map of the world and see a dot everywhere someone has watched it. And it is now every country in the world. So now what I do is run a small nonprofit organization that sort of um, harnesses the energy that this film created. And um, I suppose because, as I said before, our our, our theme this month is about stuff. What do you mean by stuff? Um, Well, my focus is on uh, sort of consumer goods, you know, all the stuff in our day-to-day life, our furniture, our clothes, our electronics, our personal care products, you know, everything you see when you go to the shopping mall and the um, supermarket, that just all the stuff that we have in our lives. I haven't looked at food, which increasingly the food production system looks like the industrial production system of other things. But if I haven't looked as much at, at food, more about um, all the things that, that clutter our house, you know, all the things that we're untangling the cords for and trying to figure out how to store in our closet and um, all that junk we have around. But that that junk makes us happier, though, doesn't it? You know, that is such an interesting um, issue. We were raised, definitely, especially in my country, but also in yours, we're raised increasingly everywhere to be told that um, the more stuff we have, the happier we'll be. And we are bombarded with messages that tell us that our professional life will be better and we will be better loved and people will find us more attractive if we have whatever, you know, the stuff of the day is, clothes or makeup or cars or furniture or whatever it is. Um, And the relationship between stuff and happiness is not that simple. Um, if If it was, we would be the happiest country in the world because we have so much stuff. I mean, we have stuff that you know, only royalty could have imagined. They couldn't have even imagined all the stuff that we, we would have in our country. Yet happiness levels um, in our country and in a lot of industrialized countries are actually declining. And that just confused me. So I looked more deeply into this relationship between stuff and happiness. 
And it turns out that there is a relationship that more stuff makes you happy if you're really in deprivation. If you don't have enough food, if you don't have access to health care, if you don't have a roof on your head, absolutely more stuff will make you happy. Um, but that relationship becomes more murky and then actually even starts to diverge. Um, the, the example I like to use is, is shoes because I personally like shoes. And I know that um, the second pair of shoes that one gets adds more to your happiness than the 22nd pair of shoes that one gets, right? That the, the per unit of stuff increment of happiness shrinks. Then say you had 222 pairs of shoes or 2,222 pairs of shoes. At some point along this shoe accumulation path, the more stuff or more shoes actually undermines your happiness for a number of reasons. I mean, one is that you've got to work all those extra hours to buy those shoes, and then you've got to stress out if you have the most fashionable shoes, and then you have to repair them and sort them and have a storage place for them. And, and the, the increasing amount of time and energy and attention that it takes managing all this stuff begins to undermine our happiness and take away time and energy and attention from the things that actually produce happiness. And those are not a new pair of shoes or a new iPhone or a new car or whatever. If you look at what actually provides happiness across so many different age groups, ethnic groups, um, nationalities, incomes, you know, once your basic needs are met, the things that most provide happiness are the quality of your social relations, you know, having time with friends and family, Another big one is having a sense of meaning or purpose to your life beyond yourself. And another big one I thought was really interesting was the, the act of working together with others, of collaborating towards a shared goal, be it a civic endeavor or a, um, a sports team or anything, the act of working together with others towards a shared goal. But we're in this crazy situation in our hyper-consumerized society that we are spending more and more time working and shopping to get more and more stuff and less and less time on those things that actually provide more happiness. And that's why the relationship between stuff and happiness is not as clear as more stuff equals more happiness. And so the film, as you said, has been watched by, by 30 million people. Have you, have you, um, has it had much sort of an, in the way of negative reactions? Have you kind of, uh, have you found yourself uh, on the end of sort of uh, um, Koch Brothers funded um, smear campaigns or anything? Well, it's it's been watched by 30 million people online. I mean, we don't even know how many millions totally because it's being used in tens of thousands of schools. It's been on um, television in a number of different countries. Um, it's being used in classrooms and even um, uh, corporate uh, human resources trainings. I recently met a woman who was a sustainability officer at a huge computer company. And she came up to me and said that every single employee in the United States in their computer company has, has to see it as part of their orientation. I mean, so we really don't know how many millions of people, but far beyond 30. Um, you know, it was interesting. I was bracing myself for more critique when it first came out because the film doesn't um, soften its message. It's, it's fun and it has cute cartoons, but it really lays out a pretty systemic critique of our um, consumeristic society and, and economy right now. Um, I tried to distill it without dumbing it down. And I was waiting for people to attack us. And for the first year, we got nothing but positive feedback and really interesting positive feedback. You know, a lot of people said, 
I knew that. I, I just didn't know how to say it. So I felt like the film sort of touched a sense of unease that so many people had rather than told them something new. But but others wrote and said, I never even thought about this stuff, and now I can't stop thinking about it. Really positive feedback. And I was glad to have that sort of buffer of a year of, of love from our movie viewers before the second year. <laughs> because in the second year, um, Glenn Beck found out about it. I hope you in the UK are lucky enough to not know who he is. Um, Unfortunately, I do know who Glenn Beck is, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, he had a television show, and a daily television show. I think it was even on twice a day. And it was just, it was his television show. He had a huge following, which to me is just an indication of the lack of critical thinking provided in our educational system in this country. Um, he just was a uh, hateful, fear-mongering um, crazy guy, who but was very entertaining. He used to be an um, entertainer before he had this so-called political show. And he really latched on to people's um, sense of economic insecurity and blamed it on everything from you know communists to immigrants to terrorists. To, you know, he really um, stoked a culture of fear and hatred and paranoia. And he found out about the film because the environmental writer from the New York Times was doing an article on what schools are using for educational curriculum around environmental issues today. You know, what we know about the environment now is so much more than 10 or 20 years ago. She wanted to know how was education changing. When she called a bunch of schools to ask them what they were using, they all said story of stuff. And so she called me up and she said, who are you? She ended up writing a front page article in the New York Times, which is the biggest newspaper in this country, about um, how many schools are using the story of stuff. Glenn Beck went crazy. And every day for weeks on his show, he would show a clip from the story of stuff. And he said that I was actually spreading communism in schools in the guise of recycling. And the, the things that he was particularly upset about in the um, film is that he, he said it was anti-capitalist because I said we cannot have infinite growth on a finite planet. And he also didn't like the part where I said it's the government's job to take care of us. And I have clarified so many times, I didn't mean to remind us to brush our teeth and tuck us into bed at night. I meant to make sure that it's the government's job to make sure that rules are fair and products are healthy. And I believe there is a very crucially important role in government to make sure that our economy is, is fair and healthy. His camp believes that there is no role for government and we should get rid of it. So he began attacking us. He actually told his viewers to find out if their student, if their children had watched it in school and then get their teachers in trouble. And we got a flood of phone calls from teachers who were being put on sort of semi-trial for having shown this film. The great thing is that every time he insulted us, we got lots of donations and supporter letters where people said, if Glenn Beck hates you, we love you. But the part of it that worried me is the, the element of of the political discourse that his camp um, represents. During that time, we got, we actually got death threats and hate mail. Um, there's a, a couple of people who actually make videos critiquing us. And on one of their Facebook sites, there was a discussion for a while about how I should be killed. If I should be chopped up or nailed to a tree or all these crazy things. And I thought, isn't, isn't that sad that our political discourse is such that a woman who stands up and says, we are using too much stuff, our society could be better and healthier and more sustainable. You know, these are not controversial, no-brainer facts. It's pretty basic, the things I'm saying, and yet 
I had to receive death threats for that. One of the things that um, that, that drives the economy of stuff is is uh, is advertising, and I did an interview yesterday with a guy called Adam Corner at Cardiff University, who's written a big thing about climate change and advertising, and and asked him um, whether he felt we could ever have any hope of achieving the cuts in carbon emissions that we need in order to avert runaway climate change um, with an advertising industry in place and no restrictions on advertising. And his sense was that he didn't think that that was going to be possible. What's your take on the power of advertising and, 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 and what we'd be able to achieve or not achieve with it still being in place? Well, you know, a lot of people roll their eyes when we critique advertising because they like to think that we all are self-determined beings and that advertising doesn't influence us. But I I agree with the um, gentleman you spoke with. I mean, advertising is basically the relentless, constant indoctrination into this consumer society. And if, if you think about it, as I said in the story of stuff, is what is the point of an ad but to make us feel inadequate or insecure with the stuff that we have? And so the way that we have set up our advertising culture is that in, in the United States, it's 3,000 ads a day targeted to each one of us. Um, that tell us that our hair is wrong and our clothes are wrong and our furniture is wrong and that we are wrong. You know, so we are absolutely bombarded with these messages promoting our inadequacy and con- promoting consumption as the solution to that. And I mean, it really is relentless here. And I've traveled you know, to over 40 countries. So I've seen in other countries, it's nothing like here. Like we have advertisements in our schools. We have advertisements in our textbooks. I mean, we have, it's, it is absolutely relentless. And sometimes I imagine, what if we were targeted with 3,000 advertisements a day telling us about the state of our planet or telling us that we are good people the way that we are or encouraging different cultural values of empathy and solidarity and civic participation? We would have a fundamentally different cultural undertone if those advertisements contain different messages. So the folks who think that advertising is not playing a crucial role in um, art, unsustainable and not fun trajectory, I think are just not, I think are a little naive. You know, I I really feel like it is essential that we restrict advertising. I would start with restricting advertising to kids. I mean, kids don't have that critical um, thinking capacity to differentiate between advertisement and other contexts. So we should definitely limit advertising to kids, get it out of our schools, get it out of our public spaces you know, when people ask me what's something they can do to help change our culture in this country, I say that we need to reclaim both our mental and our physical landscape from the just constant barrage of messages. We're In so many ways, we're fighting a unfairly stacked battle that we're going out there trying to promote values of sustainability and collaboration and empathy and participation. But, but you know, the other side is just bombarding folks with incredible incredibly well-designed, psychologically sophisticated messages telling them to just keep on that consumer treadmill. So until we can roll back that, it's, it's really an unfair battle. In the time since the story of stuff came out, do you think uh, in, the, in the world around you as you experience it, do you think our relationship with stuff has got better or worse? Would you, are, we, are we going in a good direction or not really? You know, I think you can find evidence for either, and I swing wildly back and forth that. Um, there's lots of things that I think are changing to the better. I think the fact that um, we went through such a tough economic recession and are still going through it, I think that's 
even though it's been a miserable experience and many, many, many people have suffered, I think there there's a small silver lining, which is that people are reevaluating their spending priorities. When you have less money to spend, it is less attractive to rack up all that consumer debt for a superfluous, you know, disposable fashion items. So I think there's a shift happening. Um, just last weekend in the New York Times was an article I found really encouraging. Some social scientists interview high school seniors, you know, the last year of high school, and they've been doing so for decades. And for the first time in four decades, high school seniors are saying that what's important to them going forward in their life is having a life of meaning and purpose as opposed to having a life of comfort and wealth. And I find that really helpful. There's really hopeful. There's um, so much data showing that young people are choosing to um, not even buy cars, you know, that they want to have, a, they want to travel much more lightly. I think there's a, a interesting cultural shift happening with some in our relationship to stuff. Um, when I think about my parents' generation, they were the first generation that came out of after World War II. They had experienced that sort of deprivation. And it was the first generation who could have a toaster and a bathing suit every year and a blender and a microwave and, you know, just all this stuff. And there was a, a bumper sticker that was very popular in the 70s and 80s. I don't know if you had it there, but the bumper sticker said, he who dies with the most toys wins. And I feel like that bumper sticker sort of captured the acquisition-oriented relationship to stuff. And now I feel like young people don't want to be burdened with all that stuff. I mean, it takes a lot of work and paying of rent to have room for all that stuff. And so the, the shift I see that's happening is from a focus on acquisition to a focus on access. And this is where the sharing economy comes in, is how can we have access to the things that we need without taking on the burden of ownership, which means the working and the maintaining and the storing and the insuring and the worrying about. So, for example, in my town, we have a tool lending library. So if I need a power drill to fix one thing, I'm not going to go buy it and then have it cluttering up my garage forever. I'm going to go down to the tool lending library and borrow it for a week for free and then give it back. Um, or I, I often tell people, young people can't imagine this, but when I was in university, people had record albums. And the more record albums you had, the cooler you thought you were. And so many people had a, a row of record albums. Maybe you remember this, that went their entire dorm room. And if they were really cool, they had then cinder blocks and a piece of plywood and another thousand records on top of that. So basically they would... You're describing my, you're describing my sitting room. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so that means you're giving like, you know, 10 or 20 square meters to records, if you tell young people today the, the idea of devoting 10 or 20 square meters of their living space to music, they, they think you're weird because they, they have it all in a matchbox size thing now. So I think um, through dematerialization, through sharing, I think that there's a, a hopeful cultural shift uh, away from having to actually acquire and own all this stuff. So on that part, I feel very positive. But then, you know, I, I leave my little burp, um, bubble where I live here in the Bay Area in the California and fly across the country for some talk. And I read the local newspaper and they're celebrating on Black Friday that even more people went shopping this year than last. And there's such a depressing article in the paper about how Black Friday shopping has become a social activity and how good that is that entire families 
were sleeping in line from midnight or were leaving their Thanksgiving dinner table, which is our last non-commercialized holiday that is actually about human relations. It's our last one. And people are leaving that dinner table to go um, get in line with their entire family. And these newspaper articles were celebrating that fact. So I think there's both hopeful and distressing trends. I choose to sort of screen for the hopeful ones because that helps me keep going. And what do you think the, um, the, 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 this sort of relentless uh, uh, t- treadmill of accumulation and pressure to consume and debt accumulation, what does it tell us about the, the, the sort of deeper underlying psyche, do you think? Well, I think it tells us that something is hurting inside us as individuals and as a society, um, that people have, you know, we are, we are tribal animals and we want to have a sense of belonging and a sense of community and a sense of tribe. And if we don't have that through strong family ties and healthy social relations and participation in different civic activities, then we go by that sense of belonging through a shirt that has a particular logo on it. And so to me, when I see people spending 50 or $100 for a t-shirt that has a particular logo on them on it. I feel sorry for them that they need to purchase that that access, that social that social proof or social access. I mean, I I have a teenage daughter who loves buying these clothes and so I I get to watch the dynamics unfold right here in my house. And what I see among her and her friends is that the kids who have strong senses of self and strong identity. Like my daughter is on a sports team. And so she gets a strong sense of meaning and community and identity through that. Those kids are so much more resistant to the advertising messages that they have to have a certain article of clothing to be cool. So I feel like the more that we can invest in our social relations and our sense of identity and our sense of civic participation, the less people will be trying to fill that hollowness inside them with more stuff. You talked in a um, uh, somewhere I read. You talked about the loss of citizen muscle. What does the reclaiming of that look like? Do you think? So the citizen. I use the term, the concept of citizen muscle, in sort of in contrast or in corollary to um, the citizen. I mean the consumer muscle. Um, and I came up with this theory after traveling across the country showing the story of stuff film to incredibly diverse audiences. And it was so interesting to me that the number one question by far, also the number one question we get in our inbox at work and that people ask us is what can I do? And so at first I would rattle off all these ideas of what people could do, but it, it, I just thought it was interesting that people were at such a loss of what to do because the problem is so pervasive that there is an almost infinite number of things one could do to help. So I was curious what people were thinking. And so I started turning it back to them when they asked me, what can I do? And I would ask them, well, what can you think of doing? And the answers that came back were really consistent and to me quite worrisome. Um, Everybody would say things like, um, I can recycle. I can carry my own bag to the store. I can buy organic. I can buy for, fair trade. I can stop buying bottled water. I can compost. I can get a clothesline. You know, these are all things that are very, very, very good things to do, but they're not about working together for b- big, bold, collective systemic change. They're about sort of changing our consumption habits and our day-to-day lifestyles and 
I want to be really clear. I'm not disrespecting those things. Of course, we should be doing those things. But um, we really need to move from these sort of individual consumer oriented changes to these collective citizen engagements. So I realized that each of us has two parts and, and they're both good. We should have both of these parts. We have a consumer part and we have a citizen part or consumer muscle and a citizen muscle. And the consumer muscle is what we use when we're out there consuming. And that consumer muscle is spoken to and validated and nurtured so much through these relentless advertisements we were talking about. And we are called upon to exercise that consumer muscle many times during the day. I mean, just think about your day. You are presented with a huge number of opportunities to engage as a consumer and use that consumer muscle. So our consumer muscles are really well developed. And we really identify with that consumer muscle. I mean, so much that it's often become our primary identity. You know, the media often uses the word consumer and human being interchangeably as though that is the totality of who we are. But we have this other part of ourselves, our citizen muscle, that we are not called upon to, to use as often as our consumer muscle. And so that citizen muscle has atrophied. And what worries me about that is that when we're faced with problems as enormous as disruption of the global climate, or babies being born pre-polluted with 160 industrial chemicals already in their blood at the moment of birth. I mean, these are really big systemic problems. And the best that we can think of doing is carrying our own bag to the grocery store. So what I say is we, of course, do those, those responsible consumer things, but those are a good first step. They're a good place to start, not a good place to stop. What we really need to do is engage our citizen muscles. And what that looks like is thinking about people beyond your household, thinking about the, the making change beyond your kitchen into your broader community and then into your, your country. So it involves things like working together with others to change the rules of the game rather than trying to perfect your day-to-day behavior within a fundamentally unsustainable context. Let's change that context so that the more sustainable choice becomes the new default. So what I think of engaging with our citizen muscles is really about how we show up in our community. And it can be anything from getting your neighbors together to turn a vacant lot into a garden to getting folks together to change the law that allows community garden CSAs to sell their food. You know, anything that's just about making change beyond your household, but in your broader community, talking about these issues, networking to recruit other people to get involved. Um, it could be political lobbying. It could be protesting. Um, it could be supporting those who do the protesting. There's really an infinite number of ways that, that being a citizen, um, can, what, what, how it can actually show up. But the point is we've got to start showing up in those ways if we want to implement bigger, bolder change than we can just in our kitchens or supermarkets acting alone. And my my last question, which I've asked everybody who we've who we've spoken to this month, is what does um, what does Annie Leonard buy uh, her friends and loved ones for Christmas this year? <laughs> well, I'm so lucky that um, I, my friends and loved ones share these values. You know, I have, we hear from a lot of people who just cannot get their relatives to stop sending them all this schlock. But I'm really lucky. So, in my community, um, we only do gift exchange for kids. And they have to be a used gift. And for kids, you know, they don't care if the book or the game or the toy is new or used. So that, <coughs> excuse me. So that's great. So in, in our community, um, I live with a bunch of neighbors and we're all really good friends. All the kids draw a name from a hat 
and they get so they each only have to give one gift and it has to be homemade or used. Um, so that's what we do in our community. Within my family, um, we do the same thing. We draw names, so you only have to give one gift. And we anything you want to give beyond that one gift has to be used or handmade. But there's absolutely no pressure to do that whatsoever. And we have a $25 limit on purchased gifts. So when I look at all these people standing in line and stressing out with their long lists, I just feel so sorry for them. What a chore when the holidays should be a time about relaxation and rejuvenation. And if I had to go to the mall, it would be neither relaxing nor rejuvenating. So we really um, we turn to gifts of experiences, homemade gifts, used gifts, anything that allows all of us to participate in the joy rather than the frenzy of the holiday period. 